Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Putin does a lot of hits. Most of them he gets away with and we don't even know about it. Occasionally he gets caught. But if I get killed, you can be damn sure that it's Putin that did it and he will have to bear the responsibility for it. And he knows that. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Vladimir Putin has a long list of enemies, and it usually doesn't end well for them. At the top of that list is Bill Browder, one of the first and biggest foreign investors in the wild east of post-Soviet Russia. He founded the Moscow-based Hermitage Fund, which in 1997 was rated the most successful hedge fund in the world. That was the problem. He eventually fell afoul of the murderous corruptions of Russia's marauding oligarchs. So Browder asked a Russian tax lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, to investigate some of that malfeasance. Magnitsky was arrested, jailed, and tortured for refusing to frame Browder as a crook. On November the 16th, 2009, Russian officers beat Magnitsky to death on the floor of an isolation cell. He was 37 years old. Browder vowed to avenge Magnitsky's murder and hit the Russian regime where it hurt, in their bank accounts. He successfully lobbied the US government to pass the Magnitsky Act, which blocks those implicated in his friend's murder from entering the United States and bans them from stashing their ill-gotten gains in the American banking system. This pissed off Putin. A lot. He's tried to have Browder arrested six times. But it hasn't stopped the intrepid financier from continuing to expose Putin's corruption. Though it's hard to say now which one is Captain Ahab and which one is the white whale. Bill, welcome to TBD. Great to be here. So when you first became so wildly successful as an investor in Russia in the 1990s, at first you didn't really see Putin as a negative force, did you? In fact, you felt that your interests were rather aligned. Can you explain that? So when I first got to Russia in 1996, it was the Yeltsin era. Boris Yeltsin was the president. And Yeltsin can be praised for several things. One is bringing democracy to Russia, bringing free speech to Russia. But the one thing that Yeltsin did, which was really not good at all, was that he did a deal with the devil. In order to get into power, he allowed 22 oligarchs to basically steal 40% of the country from the government. And so these 22 oligarchs had yachts and villas and planes and all this kind of stuff. And and the average life expectancy for a man was 56 years because there was no health care and so on and so forth. It was really just a disgusting period of time. And that could be firmly put on Yeltsin. And so we were in this moment in time um, as Yeltsin was sort of fading out. He was an alcoholic. He had a bad heart. He needed to be replaced. And they tried several different prime ministers who could replace Yeltsin because Yeltsin needed somebody who could pardon him the moment that that person became president. They tried three characters 
None of them worked. And then finally, as sort of a weird last choice, um, they grabbed Vladimir Putin. Not very many people knew much about him. They grabbed him. They put him in place. And in order to sort of establish himself, he said, we're going to break the back of this whole oligarch capitalism thing. And you couldn't have been in Russia at the time and not wanted that to happen. And so he came in. And for a while, he was kind of operating on that basis. He was, he was um, weakening the oligarchy, gathered them all up and said, you guys have to stop being uh, trying to usurp power from the presidency and so on and so forth. And he even went so far as to arrest the richest oligarch in Russia, Michael Hordakovsky. And so while this was going on, I was saying, great, you know, one down, 21 to go. But it turned out that Putin really had no interest in getting rid of the oligarchs per se. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. <laughs> Well, it's hard to wrap one's heads around the scale of the kleptocracy taking place right now in Russia. I mean, how much is Putin worth and how much has he stolen? Well, it's a, it's, it's, it can't be proven scientifically because he doesn't keep any of the money in his own name. He's a KGB officer. So and any money that was in his name would be that could be used to blackmail him. So he has to trust people to hold his money for him. After he arrested Hordakovsky, um, the richest guy in Russia back in 2003, the other oligarchs came to him and said, what do we have to do to make sure we don't get arrested? And the sort of notorious answer was 50%. And so I believe that he, he has a 50% interest, rough 50% interest in, in the assets of most of the major oligarchs. And if you were to do the math on that, you'd get to about $200 billion. What does he do with all this money? I mean, is he, is he a lavish liver? I mean, what does, he, what does he want all this money for? Well, that's a, a question which clearly shows that you're not a Russian gangster. <laughs> Because, <laughs> Thanks for reassuring me. <laughs> because if you're a Russian gangster, dictator, kleptocrat, you have to have the most money. If you don't have the most money, you can't be the most powerful. That's just the way it is. So are the oligarchs still powerful? They're allowed to keep on amassing their ill-gotten gains now. They're not powerful in the way we think about power. A U.S. oligarch or a Mexican oligarch or a French oligarch is what one could describe as independently wealthy. They can kind of do whatever they want um, because they're independent. Mm-hmm. In Russia, every person who's a billionaire is dependently wealthy, which means that at any moment in time, for any reason, Putin could step in, take all their money away from them, put them in jail, or even kill them. And it's really interesting. I go, I go to the World Economic Forum in Davos each year. I've been doing this for many years. And you see all different types of billionaires and oligarchs from different countries. And most of the uh, sort of Western oligarchs are running around, shaking hands, exchanging business cards, being all friendly with each other, exploring new ideas. The Russians are all sitting there in one place, not talking to anybody, all looking down because they're afraid anything they say or do might be the end of their whole situation. So you write that the ethos of Russian business is like the prison yard. If someone is coming for you, you have to kill him before he kills you. That's a pretty scary climate to operate. I mean, how has his grip, Putin, changed since that period? I mean, he's now amassed all this power. He's cowed the oligarchs. What has changed in Putin's world now in this 15 years, whatever, that he's been there? So when, when he first started out, he kind of had the best of all worlds, which was that the oil prices were going up, the average um, Russian was getting better off, and he, he effectively did a deal with the people of Russia, which is if they can allow him to get rich and to take away power from everybody else, um, they could live a slightly better life than they were living before. And that all worked until about 2008 when the global financial crisis hit. And then all of a sudden, people weren't getting better off, and they were getting worse off. And so Putin is now in this very uncomfortable situation where he's been in power for almost 20 years, and um, the Russian people 
are not happy anymore because their standard of living is low and getting lower and their freedoms have been all curtailed. And so Putin has to try to find a way of deflecting that anger. And this is this is not some new creative thing that he's thought up. It's Machiavelli 101. If you're trying to stay in power illegitimately. Find an enemy. Exactly. Start a war and get everybody all riled up. And that's what they did with Ukraine. I mean, the Ukrainians and the Russians have no beef with each other. But what the Russian government did, what Vladimir Putin did, was he created a propaganda war inside of Russia, claiming that the Ukrainians were fascists and Nazis, and they were going to be eating Russian-speaking babies for breakfast, and they needed to effectively invade the country as a humanitarian exercise to protect ethnic Russians. And they, they ran this all the time, and then they took Crimea, and, his, and then all of a sudden, his approval ratings went from like 45% to 88%. So that's one of the things he does. And the other thing he does is um, the more angry people start feeling, the more fear they need to feel in order for him to protect himself from getting overthrown. And so he has taken it from what I would call, I mean, when I, when I first started out in Russia, it was just a total chaotic regime. There was nothing, nothing organized about it. When he came in, he developed sort of a loose authoritarian regime. And now I would, I would argue that it's a totalitarian regime. Yeah, it's now a tyranny. That famous press conference in Helsinki when Trump and Putin sat side by side and Trump was sort of selling out the intelligence community in 2018, Putin actually brought up your name in that press conference. Was that unsettling to hear? So the Friday before the Monday of the press conference, um, Robert Mueller indicted 12 GRU officers. And so the Russians were scrambling to try to figure out how to respond to this because it was going to be brought up at the, at the summit. And so Putin and his guys were all sitting around spitballing, what should we come up with? And they came up with this crazy idea, which when the reporter asked, will you cooperate with Mueller? Putin said, yes, we will, provided that America and Donald Trump hands over Bill Browder and 11 American government officials who are part of the Bill Browder criminal syndicate. <laughs> and, and these people, by the way, were, were one of them was, was Mike McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Another one was Kyle Parker, who's the chief of staff of the Helsinki Commission who wrote the Magnitsky Act. I and mean, it, were you sitting watching this and thinking, holy shit? Well, no. So everybody in America was surprised by this, but I wasn't because this was like the fifth time that he's done this type of thing. It wasn't the fifth time he'd asked Trump to hand me over, but it was the fifth time that Putin got all crazy about me. And it, it wasn't even that long before that. It was in, in 2017, after Canada passed a Magnitsky Act, that at a big conference in Moscow, a Canadian academic asked Putin about the Magnitsky Act. And Putin went into this six-minute tirade about all the supposed crimes I'd committed. And what was most interesting about his tirade was watching his body language, looking at his facial expression. You know, Putin uses um, a lot of Botox and, and so on. But even with all the Botox, his face was getting all curled up and wrinkled up and angry and his forehead was furling. And you could really tell that there was something so very emotional. So well, you've really got under his skin. I, yeah. mean, I mean, what was the pivotal moment of that? Now, the pivotal moment was December 14, 2012. And on December 14, 2012, President Obama signed the Magnitsky Act into a federal law. The Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of Russian human rights violators. Vladimir Putin is a human rights violator, and he has a lot of assets in the West. And he's ready to kill to create those assets. And so to create a situation, which I did together with the U.S. Congress, of putting his personal wealth at risk is something that's so unforgivable that since then he's been on a personal vendetta against me to try to destroy me because he feels so, so aggravated because it really hits him right between the eyes. 
it's become a kind of fascinating duel in a way between you. I mean, because you both have your own obsession. You are obsessed with avenging the terrible, cruel murder of, you know, your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And he, of course, is obsessed with getting you out of his hair. But tell me how you first became involved with Magnitsky and why his death has been seared onto your soul to the point you've made this really a multi-year crusade. So in 2005, I was expelled from Russia after a career of exposing corporate corruption in companies that I was investing in. I was running an investment fund. Um, I owned shares of some of the big Russian companies. Those companies were corrupt. And I thought to try to improve the value of the shares, I should expose the corruption. And um, I apparently exposed the corruption of Vladimir Putin and people close to him because they expelled me from the country in 2005. And um, after they expelled me, I made a decision, which was to get all my people to safety and get all my assets out of Russia. And so I, I evacuated my staff, we liquidated our assets, and then we thought we were all done with Russia. And it turned out that we weren't. In, in 2007, and I still kept an office in Moscow, 25 police officers raided my office in Moscow, and 25 more officers raided the office of an American law firm we used in Moscow. And they were looking for all these stamps, seals, and certificates for the investment companies through which we had invested in Russia. They found those at the law firm, they seized those documents, and then they used those documents to perpetrate a highly sophisticated fraud where they couldn't get any of our money because we got our money out, but they, they went and said, how much taxes did these guys pay in the previous year? And we paid a huge amount of taxes, $230 million. And they took our stolen companies, and then they used those companies to request a $230 million illegal tax refund. I um, hired a lawyer, the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky, to help me figure this whole thing out. He was the one who figured out what they had done. And when he figured it out, not just as my lawyer, but as a Russian patriot, he thought this was so outrageous. It wasn't my money that was being stolen. This was the Russian people's money, tax money that was being stolen. And so he testified against the officials involved um, at the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their FBI. And then the same people he testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning on the 24th of November, 2008. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention. And then they began to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. And they wanted to not just to have him withdraw his testimony. They wanted to have him sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. And he did so on my instruction. And for Sergei, and this is, this is sort of the pivotal moment in the story, for Sergei, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more upsetting to him than the torture that they were doing to him. I mean, for him, his ideology of goodness was more important than the physical pain. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus. You'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I mean, it's so moving that this man turned out to be such a kind of accidental hero. You know, a sort of who would have known that this tax lawyer had this extraordinary backbone that he just wasn't going to tell a lie. And we, nobody knows about that about themselves. I mean, you know, what would I do in that situation? I don't know. Probably not that. You know, but he was uh, he was a tax lawyer. I mean, the, you know, he wasn't even a human rights lawyer or, or you know, I, I, I mean, he was a tax lawyer who just had such integrity that he wasn't going to break down and do what everybody else did. And he ended up paying the ultimate price, which was that they killed him. They murdered him in a horrifying way after huge torture and pain and physical... It was just horrifying. And for me, they killed him as my proxy. And and so when I got the news of his murder the next morning after he was killed, it was the most horrifying, traumatic, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. And And it was obvious to me that I had only one choice in my life, which was to put aside everything else I was doing and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure that they face justice. When did you first get the idea for what became the Magnitsky Act, and, and how effective do you think it's actually been? So at first, after Sergei was, was murdered, we tried to go through the normal routes of justice, and we had, we had a good case. Sergei had written everything down that happened to him while he was incarcerated, all the torture, all the beatings, all the, the denial of medical care, all, all the really nasty stuff. He wrote it all down in the form of 450 criminal complaints that he filed during his 358 days in detention. And again, this is like this unbelievable, unique thing. Most people just like want to keep their mouth shut. He, every month, he would meet with his lawyer. He'd hand him a stack of handwritten complaints. The lawyer would file them, shaking his head, saying, I don't know why you're doing this, Sergei. And then he'd give us copies. And so we have the most granular, well-documented account of human rights abuse that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, I would have thought that maybe the regime wouldn't have prosecuted the ringleaders, but they would surely have to throw at least the executors under the bus, like we've seen recently in Saudi Arabia. But no, they didn't do that. Um, They circled the wagons. They exonerated everybody involved. They gave special promotions and state honors to some of the people most complicit. Vladimir Putin personally got involved in this whole obstruction of justice and covering up of a murder. And then in the most shocking action, three years after they killed Sergei Magnitsky, they put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. It's unbelievable. And so that was when we said to ourselves, "If if we can't get justice inside of Russia, let's get justice outside of Russia. Then the question is, well, how do you get justice for a murder and a torture that, that was committed in a different country. And there, there are no legal tools to do that. And I was so frustrated that I said, if, if there are no legal tools, then we have to create one. So then what is the tool? And, the, and then we said, well, look, the guys who did this, 
they killed him not for ideology or for religion. They killed him for $230 million. And they don't keep that money in Russia because as easy as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep that money in New York banks, in Miami condos, in French villas, in Swiss bank accounts. They send their kids to private schools in England. And I came up with this idea, which is sort of, in retrospect, incredibly obvious, which is let's ban them from traveling to all these places in the West where they spend their money and let's freeze their assets when they get there. And it was it's such an elegant idea. <laughs> it is inspired. I mean, uh, it really is because you hit them where it really hurt. And so your question is, so how effective is it? Well, let me tell you that it is so effective that um, Putin has made it his number one foreign policy priority to have it repealed. He's so upset by this thing. And of course, he did that very, very cruel retaliation when he said that Americans could no longer adopt Russian children, which I would have thought was the most kind of uh, sort of psychopathically vicious thing you could think of, because you're actually punishing these completely defenseless kids, many of them who are disabled and so on, who are adopted by Americans in Russia. And and that could not have been popular, I wouldn't have thought. Well, I mean, to, to really just, just to flesh out how evil it is, they, they would never allow Americans to adopt healthy Russian orphans. They would only allow them to adopt the sick ones, the ones with HIV, with Down syndrome, with spina bifida, with heart conditions. And in spite of that, Americans came in the thousands each year with open arms and open hearts and took these sick children from Russia to America where they nursed them to health. If you were ever on this Delta flight from, from Moscow to New York, every day it was full of totally disoriented, crying children as they're being taken back to America and like given a, a better life. Any child that wasn't being adopted effectively had a reasonably high probability of not surviving to the age of 18 among these sick children. And so effectively what Putin was doing was sentencing his own orphans to death in order to make a point, not even so much to the Americans at this point, making a point to everybody else in the world that if you do a Magnitsky Act, we are so crazy, we'll just shoot our own orphans. In your campaign in, against Russia throughout this, I mean, you, you were very effective about sort of naming and shaming and getting under their skin. I, I was very impressed what a sort of imaginative campaigner you were with your kind of uploading these these YouTube videos and stuff, you know, identifying the corruption of the various officials. Just talk to me a little bit about how you did that, Bill, because it's really inspired, actually. Well, one of the things, as we were trying to, to gain um, public awareness of, of the story and to influence the... Um, policymakers to take this story seriously and to focus on it. Um, one of the things I discovered is that people actually don't really read newspapers. I mean, or, or if they do, it's a very small segment of the population. And those that do read newspapers don't remember what they read. Maybe they don't even read the article in full. And, and so what we discovered was that the people who were responsible for this whole Magnitsky case not only did terrible things to Sergei Magnitsky, but they also got rich. And really rich. And we're talking about like minor level people, like a, the lady in the tax office that authorized the tax refund that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. She was like on a, an official salary of $38,000 a year. And she had a $20 million Moscow villa. She was buying up multiple villas and condominiums on the Palm Jumeirah in <laughs> Dubai. And from the crime directly to her husband's accounts at Credit Suisse in Zurich was... $11.7 million of wire transfers. It's just stunning. It's so stunningly flagrant. But here's where, where the videos come in is that, you know, I talk about it and, and you have a reaction. But if you actually see it, I mean, you see the house, 
and you see the villas, it all really sticks with you. And, and we put the stuff on, on YouTube, these ten, little 10-minute <laughs> videos. And, and, you know, and journalists are always sort of the arbiters of what's news and what isn't news. And, and this was very early on in the sort of life of the Internet and life of YouTube that we broke through and said, no, you're not the arbiter. This is news and fear of libel suits and all that be damned. We're going to put this out there. And we actually did get I mean, I, I do remember that, the headlines in some tabloid, you know, the tax princess. Yes. I, remember what, I remember reading this and in, I think it was actually even in the National Enquirer at the checkout counter. You know, it was just wonderful to see what you did to that appalling woman. What happened to them after all this was, was came out? Well, well so, so the, the, the great thing is that we, we made them all sort of famous. I mean, these are sort of criminals that operate in the shadows. And so we completely cut off all of their opportunity to commit these these same type of crimes because nobody wants to be part of their criminal group when when anything they do, any arrest that's made by Lieutenant Colonel Artum Kuznetsov, who was the guy who did the raid, any arrest that he does, any other, other person, they say, oh, he's the famous guy who, who raced or the tax <laughs> princess. They all became unemployed. I mean, now, they're not in jail. They're not being prosecuted for all the, the heinous crimes they did, but... They're not employed. But their life is very deeply unpleasant ever since. And they're on the Magnitsky list, which means they can't open a bank account anywhere. Life is difficult for them, and they're cursing. And and part of my objective is if we couldn't get justice inside of Russia, they should rue the day that they decided to kill Sergei Magnitsky. Why aren't you dead? Why hasn't Putin had you killed? I mean, he he kills people with impunity, more and more impunity these days, you know, poisoning them, shooting them dead in, you know, in the streets in broad daylight. How do you get to survive having done this? Well, most of the time... For a person who's in a, a conflict situation with Putin or with the Russian regime, the natural reaction is, many, many, many people have advised me to do this, is stop it, go quiet, go to ground. Those are the people who die. Uh, I took just the opposite approach, which is raise my voice, go straight at them, and do it in plain sight. And it's confusing for them because Putin does a lot of hits. Most of them he gets away with and we don't even know about it. Occasionally he gets caught. But if I get killed... You could be damn sure that it's Putin that did it, and he will have to bear the responsibility for it. And he knows that. Let's just go back to what on earth you were doing in Russia in the first place, right? Because some of the most exciting uh, stuff in, in your book, Red Notice, is, is really the sort of early days of investing in post-Soviet Russia, which was this wild place. And you make sort of investing in emerging markets seem as exciting as joining the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> you know, it, it's such a kind of cowboy uh, atmosphere. Why did you, the grandson of the head of the Communist Party in the U.S., which is what you are, incredibly, decide to become the biggest capitalist in Russia? I'm 54 years old. I was born in 1964, and I was going through my teenage rebellion in the 1970s and trying to figure out how to rebel from this family of mine, this communist left-wing family. And the perfect way of rebelling from my family was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And everybody in my family hated that. And um, and I felt very proud of myself having like really, you know, gotten under their skin. And so I became a capitalist and I went to Stanford Business School and I graduated business school in 1989. And 1989 was a very auspicious year as far as communism capitalism was concerned, because that was the year that the uh, Berlin Wall came down. And when the Berlin Wall came down, I, I said to myself, and I started to figure out what to do with my life post-business school. And I said to myself, well, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America then I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so I actually went out to Russia, not specifically because I thought it was profitable. I, I just went out there because it was sort of this new frontier and it kind of fit into this weird family narrative. And 
you know, it's kind of like, you know, the people who, who succeed in any industry generally don't do it for financial reasons. They do it for other reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Bill Gates probably just really loved tinkering with software before software became something. And I, w- I went out to Russia not because I, I thought it was You were looking for adventure. I was looking for some type of relevant adventure to my, to my own background. And you're right. It was just total Wild West. Well, t- tell me just a little bit about what it was like. I mean, when did you first understand that there were opportunities there? Because it was this sort of broken down corrupt, dark place. I mean, what did you see in it? Well, I was sent out there. I worked for Solomon Brothers in one of my first jobs on their Eastern European um, investment banking team. And I was sent out there to advise the fishing fleet, the Murmansk trawler fleet, which is a fishing fleet located 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle in a little town called Murmansk. I go to Murmansk. The head of the fishing fleet takes me down to the docks, shows me one of the boats, and it was this enormous vessel. It was like 400 feet long. It was on five different stories. On the top story, they like catch the fish, and then and then they separate them out in the middle of the boat. And then at the at the lowest level, they actually have canning machines that it was like a factory on the water. And then these boats would stay out for six months at a time, just collecting fish and canning them. And it was really very impressive looking. And I I asked the guy who ran it, how much does one of these things cost? And he said um, twenty million dollars. And I said, how many do you have in your fleet? He said 100. So I did the math. Uh, 20 million times 100, that gets you to $2 billion worth of ships. And I said, what's the age of the fleet? He said, it's about seven years. So I figure maybe that means that this half depreciated. So it's at this point a billion dollars worth of ships. And I've been hired by the management of this fishing fleet to advise them on whether to exercise their legitimate right under the privatization program of Russia to buy 51%. And so I asked him, I said, at what price is the government selling you 51%? And he said, $2.5 million. <laughs> so you can buy 51% of a company with a billion dollars of the ships for $2.5 million. And that was when I realized that, that... was the light bulb moment. That was the light bulb moment. And I realized, I mean, first of all, I said, what am, what am I doing advising on this stuff? I should be investing in it. But that, that was the moment that it became not just a sort of an interesting family adventure, but that, that's when it became like an interesting business opportunity. And of course... I was there and nobody else was there because I had like gone out there sort of in search of this adventure. And so I was able, you know, I had several years head start over everybody else as I, I To said. me, though, it still seemed just so sort of recklessly, amazingly adventurous to be sort of arriving in this place. You don't even speak Russian, do you? Not a word. Not I, a word. How did you forge this career? Because there you are. I mean, it's such a dicey thing to do. I mean, even though you thought, okay, you know, as a smart man with figures, I mean, you looked at it, you realized this could be an opportunity. I don't think many people would have been sort of intrepid enough or crazy enough or kind of confident enough, particularly at your young age, as you were in your 20s at that time, right? Well, so, so I was in my 20s, but so he, he, the, the answer is yes. Absolutely, you couldn't be more right. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's something different about me, which is that my risk sensors, you know, if we all have like little risk sensors on our foreheads, my, I had sanded mine down because, you know, if I had looked at all the things that could have gone wrong, and thought about them, I would have never gone out there because nobody else did. I mean, nobody else, like, you know, with a Stanford MBA went and moved to Moscow and did all this stuff. Everyone was perfectly happy to sit in Wall Street and the city of London and Geneva and so on and so forth. And Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. At least I understand now what investing in emerging markets, which always sounded so sort of grand. Now I realize it's about showing up in some incredibly scary, sketchy plays and sort of taking all these risks and risking your life and, and dealing with all these mad, corrupt people and maybe sort of making money at the end. It kind of makes it much more intriguing. Well, I mean, yeah, and certainly now as a sort of um, late middle-aged man, my, my, I mean, I, I don't invest any of my money in emerging markets because it's, <laughs> it's insane. It's it's it's, it's crazy. Um, but but um, but it was pretty exciting then. And, and the beautiful thing is, so I was 25 when I first started doing this and nobody had any more experience than I did because it had all just opened up the previous year. And so there was nothing more satisfying than not having an establishment that you had to break through. You could just show up and do it. Now, were you competing with Russians for these deals, or did they not see it themselves? Well, so there were these 22 oligarchs, which I wasn't competing with because they effectively monopolized the market. But what I was doing was getting crumbs were falling off the table from these really big deals. And so I was picking up the crumbs. There was just so much out there that people weren't even paying attention. And I could forge a a great business just picking up the crumbs that other So you actually then decided, I'm going to form my own fund, and you started the Hermitage uh, Fund, which was your Russia-based investment company, which made a huge amount of money. And you know you were a giant success and the most successful hedge fund in the world at one point, correct? Correct. Um, what was your sort of daily life as an investor like there? Because you moved to Moscow, you lived there. I mean, did you enjoy living there in, in the middle of all this? Did you did you find the, the business community you were in a... Uh, a sort of group of brutal, weird characters, or, or whether was it an interesting time? How, how was that? Well, it, it was not a very pleasant place to live, and I don't mean pleasant from a you know sort of apartment office type of thing, but it was not pleasant in terms of the type of people that I was dealing with because I, I effectively didn't have any peers because the Russians who were my peers were all criminals. I didn't want to hang out with them. And then there were these foreigners, and the foreigners that were out there were mostly sort of these weird um, rejects that couldn't make it on Wall Street or, or, you know, were running from the law. I mean, it was really this sort of Wild West place where, like, and so it was a very lonely place for me because I, I had just, a, like, two or three good friends, and um, I, I, there was no socializing to do. And so it was, you know, working every day from 9 in the morning until 10 at night. And then I went back to London on the, every other weekend to try to get some respite from the whole thing. Well, you actually fell in love with and married a Russian woman, Elena. Um, you're still married with her and you actually have five children, don't you? You're about to have a child. Is there anything you like about Russia? I mean, would you go back if you were allowed to? Because you're not allowed to go to Russia now and you'd be killed if you did, no doubt. So do you have any affinity for the place? Well, I, I have a, a, all sorts of very strong feelings for the place, some very positive ones and some very negative ones. If I, if I were to return anywhere near Russia, I would be arrested, put in, and I've been sentenced twice in absentia to 18 years in prison. So um, I, I don't want to go anywhere near Russia because I don't want to spend my final days on earth in, in a gulag. Um, but if, you know, the Putin regime were to collapse and, you know, Gary Kasparov becomes the president of Russia, I would love to go back there. I, when, I, when I'm anti-Putin, I'm not anti-Russia. I, I believe the Russian people are living in an occupied country. And, and Russian people are some of the most sincere, earnest, honest people, Sergei Magnitsky-like out there. I mean, they're, they're, they're very special people and, and, and it's a very special country. But it's an occupied country. It's a criminal country right now, and, and I can't go anywhere near that. I was struck by the comment of a one-time Russian lawmaker who was, by the way, shot dead in broad daylight on a sidewalk in Kiev in 2017. He said, 
The current situation in Russia is reminiscent of Nazi Germany during Hitler's rule. Everyone knew he was killing the Jews but continued cooperating with him for many <clears> years, <throat> acting as if nothing was happening. Do you think Russia's got even darker since the death of Magnitsky in 2009? I mean, do you think it's that atmosphere of fear and tyranny is, is darkening or do you think it's kind of in a place where it'll stay? No, it's getting darker and darker every day. I mean, everybody knows that it's all a lie. The entire thing is a lie. If you look at a survey of 18 to 27-year-olds, 44% of people in that age group want to leave Russia. You know, so, I mean, put aside all this nonsense about who supports Putin because it's just not true. And you say, well, people are voting with their feet. Anyone who has the opportunity to leave Russia does because there is no future there. If you're an entrepreneur, the chances of succeeding are very low just because it's a hostile business environment. But if you do succeed, your business will be stolen from you and you get put in jail and your family will be imprisoned. Or you might get killed. Who wants that? So um, you've been called an accidental activist. You're only 54 years old. You live in London with Elena and your children. Will you resume your life ever as a businessman or, or is activism now your life's work? This is far more interesting, rewarding, and and meaningful to be an activist. And I, I was fortunate that I had a hugely successful life as a business person, and so I can be an activist and I can afford to be. And and um, and there's nothing more dangerous than a well-resourced, highly effective person who wants to do this kind of stuff that I want to do. The and guy, how many countries is, is Magnitsky now in? Because you've actually expanded it beyond so, the U.S. So after the U.S., we then got Canada and then the United Kingdom and then Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And now the big prize, um, which looks likely, is the European Union. And it's not just for Russia. It's now for bad guys everywhere. I was going to say, do you think that you know the Magnitsky Act could now be extended to all of the journalists' murders that are happening? I mean, with the Khashoggi outrage. Could we not extend Magnitsky to that community? Because it, it, they are under more threat. Journalists are under more threat, really, it seems, than they've ever been. They are being bumped off all over the world. It doesn't need to be extended. It already applies. The 17 people who were involved in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi are on the U.S. Magnitsky list. Oh, they are on that they, list. They are on the U.S. Magnitsky list, and they're on the Lithuanian Magnitsky list, and I believe they're on the Canadian Magnitsky oh, list. And so, And so it's a tool to be used by everybody who's a victim. And, and, and there's nothing more satisfying to me. And I, I have now conversations literally four or five times a day with different groups that have been victimized and to help them maneuver so they can get their persecutors uh, sanctioned. What, do you, what is the real end goal of your activism? Well, it used to be justice for Sergei Magnitsky, but it has metastasized into a global justice campaign for all sorts of victims. And I don't think there's ever an end to this campaign. There's just too many bad guys out there, too many people who have been victimized that I'm just going to carry on doing this forever. What do you say to the sort of the pragmatic sort of geopolitical arguments, which is, for instance, you know, Saudi may be the most horrifying dark regime, but you know, America has all these business interests. What's the line you draw so that America is not expecting itself to police every single regime. There are so many thugs out there. Well, the beautiful thing about the policy that I've created, the Magnitsky Act, is it doesn't go after a country. It goes after specific individuals. Right. And so we can have a perfectly good relationship with Saudi Arabia, but if Mohammed bin Salman ordered the dismemberment of a, of a Washington Post journalist, then he's got to be sanctioned. He personally has to be sanctioned. And, and it's their decision. Do they want to have the wrath of the United States um, or do they want to like um, hang him out to dry? But that, that's the beauty of this thing. Right. I see that. 
Well, the death of Magnitsky obviously has taken a huge emotional toll on you and your family and, of course, his family. And I know you've moved his widow uh, and son to London. Uh, what do you tell this boy about his father's sacrifice? Well, I think his, his, his boy has seen firsthand um, how meaningful his father's sacrifice has been for the world. Um, Nikita Magnitsky, his son, um, came when the Magnitsky Act passed, um, and he was, I think at the time, 12 or 13, and he was the only one in the family that spoke English, and I took the family to Washington. And so he was translating at the press conference with Senator Benjamin Cardin and John McCain on behalf of his family about how, how grateful they were to recognize uh, Sergei Magnitsky and hopefully save other lives. He came to Canada when the Canadian Magnitsky Act was passed, and he met Prime Minister Trudeau. He's a, a young aspiring artist. He painted a painting for Trudeau to thank him for recognizing his father. Well, that's an incredibly sort of beautiful thing to have been able to achieve, Bill. And I really want to congratulate you on the extraordinary courage that you've shown yourself in trying to avenge the tragic murder of Sergei Magnitsky and give us a tool to persecute these thugs going forward. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Liked what you heard today? There's more where that came from. Check out my interview with Media Prince, editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.